Hi, everyone. It's Raghu back with Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. And uh, I have the privilege today of uh, having a, being able to spend time with Jet Sunma Tenzin Palmo, who has an extraordinary story. I've known about you for quite some time, but welcome, Tenzin. So uh, there's a wonderful book, by the way, uh, Reflections on a Mountain Lake, which is teachings on practical Buddhism. And I just, I just said to Tenzin, gee, you know, this is what we attempt to do is take some of this incredible wisdom, these incredible teachings from the East and give it as practical an application uh, and, uh, as we can. So in order for people to be able to to use them on a day-to-day basis. So, and this book is chock full of them. And uh, can we start though? Because the story is incredible. So Tenzin is a British of British origin and uh, had, uh, this is where she found her, as we would say, found her Dharma in England at a very young age. Do you mind telling that story? Because people will be uh, really be able to connect with it. It's quite beautiful. Your your origin story that you had, like at the beginning of the book, actually you say, funny enough, uh, that I guess this was a talk that you gave. I'm told that I'm supposed to talk about my experiences in the retreat. I think that's probably the last thing I would want to do. Um, I'll begin describing how I got to the ret- to your retreat, which is a famous thing you can mention later, uh, in the first place. So as a child growing up, I mean, there's some incredible uh, experiences that you had that led you to this path. Well, I'm not sure anything was particularly extraordinary, but my, my first brush with Buddhism was um, when I was about eight or nine, and um, I was watching a program on television, which was a documentary where this couple were visiting um, Thailand. In those days, Thailand was a very exotic place, right? Mm, mm. This was in the 1950s, early 1950s. And they were go- showing um, in this temple the life story of the Buddha mm. on frescoes. And wow. I said to my mother, Who's the Buddha? And she said, well, I think he's some sort of oriental god. (laughs) Then I said, no, he couldn't be a god because he has a life story like Jesus. So he must be a human being. Mm. Then I said, I'm a Buddhist. And my mother said, oh, are you dear? So then who's the Buddha? (laughs) And I said, I can't remember. And I knew, I knew, but it was in the back of my mind, I couldn't bring it forward. I, I knew I knew who the Buddha was and that I was a Buddhist, but who was the Buddha? But, you know, in those days, you never heard anything about, well, about Asian religion in general. You know, this was back in, as I say, in the 50s. And... Uh, Although I had various um, insights and experiences, which later I recognized were, in fact, very Buddhist, like the fact of death, I mean, the Mm. imminence of death, that everybody, I'd watch buses going by with people and think every single one thing that all these people share is that they're all going to get old and die. And, um, you know, basically this is very unsatisfactory. I said to my mother, you know, life is suffering. And she said, well, you know, yeah, there are bad parts, but there are good parts too. Mm. And I thought, no, you, you missed the point. The point is that we're like on a train which is going to, you know, crash. And we're just lying around looking out the window. We're not doing anything to get ready. And but you are no how, old? So how old? How old were you? That time I was about 13. <laughs> um. Nobody understood. I mean, from a very, very early age, when I was really small, maybe three or four, I had recognized that we were inherently perfect. 
but mm. somehow we had lost contact with our true nature. Mm. Really? And so we had to keep really? coming back again and again until we discovered who we really were, which was perfect. So always my question was, what is perfection and how do we realize it? What is the path? And so I tried looking at various religions, but none of them spoke to me because I don't have any contact with the idea of some external entity that created us and is pulling the strings and then judging us. Mm. I, I never connected with that idea. And all the religions that I came across, including Islam, were based on our relationship with this external being. So if you didn't believe in an external being like that, then you were left with nothing to work with mm. until I was 18 and read my first book on Buddhism. And of course, Buddhism is non-theistic. It's not based on our relationship to someone outside of ourselves. It's relation to ourselves, to understanding the nature of the mind. Mm. And the Buddha gave a path I was so deeply grateful to the Buddha for setting out a clear path to realizing our inherent pure nature. So, I mean, I read half the book and then I said to my mother, I'm a Buddhist. And she said, oh, are you, dear? Well, finish reading the book. Then you can tell me all about it. But as I read the book, I recognized this is what I had always believed. I just hadn't known that there was actually already, I didn't have to invent all this. It was already mm. set out for me. Yeah. I was so grateful to the Buddha. Mm. Yeah, no, in the, you say in, in, the, in the book, in the early part, whenever I thought of the Buddha, I would cry tears of devotion. I loved the Buddha and I wanted to be like him. This, is, uh, this um, heart part is for me, of course, some of the most interesting parts of the book when you talk about devotion and love and so on. Because um, we encountered a being, uh, Neem Karoli Baba, Ramdas's guru, and then we met him, went over, who was very much uh, bodhisattva. And that there's different things in this book where you describe meeting your guru or just the profundity of of the teachings and so on in a devotional manner and in, in a way that uh, a light came in in that moment, which is parallel, absolutely parallels in our experience back at that time. Um, and then, but you had a little bit of help. I mean, I see, uh, for instance, Trungpa Rinpoche. You met him when he was just, had just arrived in, in the West, right? What happened there? I mean, he was seminal for us back in the day. When, when, uh, when we came back from India, you know, uh, he, we, we used to go see him. Uh, Tale of the Tiger was called then. I don't even remember what it is now. And, uh, yeah, a very enigmatic, crazy wisdom was the word that was used. But, yeah, what was your experience there? Because I think he kind of helped push you into a direction that, that you were supposed to go? Well, I mean, what can I say about Trungpa? I mean, yes, we, we met him when he had just been in England one week, actually. And in those days, there was very, very little interest or knowledge in the West um, mm. about Tibetan Buddhism. Everybody was either doing uh, Theravada or Zen, Mm. And so Tibetan Buddhism was very alien to most people. And so since I was, uh, had discovered that I, I was, uh, my connection with, with, with Tibetan Buddhism and with, especially with the Kagyu school, um, so then uh, I was very happy that uh, Trungpa Rinpoche and Akung Rinpoche were there. They were in Oxford. I mean, Trungpa Rinpoche was studying in Oxford and so one week, one Sunday, my mother and I would go to Oxford to see them. Next Sunday, they would come to London to see us. So oh, really? we, it was so easy in those days. Lamas, wow. you know, there were Bumpur Lamas and Gelug Lamas 
but they were also happy just to have someone who was interested in them because mm. those were the days. Mm. And Trungpa was very, uh, he wasn't, yeah, in those days they were supposed to be monks. Um, and so he wasn't really my idea of how a monk should behave. No. No. But, uh, I mean, it wasn't that he was drinking or sleeping around in those days. I mean, yeah. he had just gotten to England, so yeah, he was so behaving he was, himself. I see. But um, nonetheless, he clearly was um, not really my idea of how a monk should be acting. But nonetheless, I always felt there was something very special about him, that he was a real deal. You know, I didn't know why or how, but there was something about him that was mm. very profound. Yeah. And, um, but he always said also that, although one time he said to me, look, can I teach you meditation? I must have one student. <laughs> so I said, okay, sure, you can teach meditation, why not? Um but, I mean, later on he said, I'm not your teacher. Your teacher is in India. And uh, I knew that. And he knew that. So there was no question that he was mm. going to be my lama. Right. But I was very fond of both him and Akong Rinpoche. They were mm. very, they were very special. And the West got a great blessing from both of them. I mean, Akong Rinpoche also did... Uh, tremendous things, especially once he split with uh, Trungpa and could be in his own space. Yeah. While he was with Trungpa, he was acting more like his attendant monk oh, really? as well oh. as his friend. Right. Huh. So you did get to India. And tell us about that, then you were mom, meeting your guru, your teacher. Mm? Getting to India and meeting yeah, your India. teacher. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, that's so long ago now. <laughs> I, I went to India to uh, work at the school, which was set up by this extraordinary woman called Frida Beatty. Yes. Or Ketchapamu. Yes. And she had a real belief that Tibetan Buddhism would take off in the West. I didn't think it would ever be of any interest to complicated, exotic, erotic, esoteric, just not for the West. Mm. But she would be sure that it would it would catch fire and that the people that would take the Dharma to the West would be the Tukus, the incarnate lamas. Mm. And so therefore these incarnate lamas needed to get ready and how to get ready was to have a good knowledge of English. But it was no good sending them like to a Catholic school or something to learn where, you know, their English is the best because they also needed to know Dharma. So therefore she arranged for this school which was divided into the four traditions and each one had their own teacher, Geshe's and Kempo's, to teach. The monks studied Buddhist philosophy and did ritual but at the same time, the emphasis was on learning English. Wow. So I worked there. And, I mean, many, many tukus were there. Uh, for example, Trungpa Rinpoche and Akong, before they went to England, had been at this school. Tatang Tuku, Lama Sopa Rinpoche, mm. and many other lamas, um, Paka Rinpoche and, and so forth, who later went to the West and were very successful in spreading dharma they started by uh, attending this uh, young lama's homeschool wow and learning english <laughs> amazing and then you did meet your guru yes well i i was working as secretary to frida mm. and one night day we got this uh, letter from this tibetan group which had um, a sample of Tibetan handmade paper and asking if we could find a market for this paper. And um, it was signed, come to Rinpoche. And then just, just hearing that name, faith arose, as they say. Mm. And uh, so then I asked Frida, who is come to Rinpoche? And she said, oh, he's a very high Kaju Lama. 
And I said, oh, he's a Kaju Lama. I could take refuge with him. And she said, oh, yes. And then she remembered that he was the Lama we were waiting for. We'd rented a house for him. Oh. And she said, he's the Lama we're waiting for. So he was supposed to come in May, and we waited all through May, and he didn't come. Then we waited all through June, and he didn't come. And then on the last day of June, which was my 21st birthday, Frida got a call, a phone call. Then she put the phone down and she said, well, your best birthday present has just arrived down at the bus station. Come to Rinpoche has arrived. So as soon as I saw him, I knew this was my Lama. I mean, it was just like meeting someone that I'd known for a long time but hadn't seen again for some time. And so then I asked him first if I could take refuge and then uh, after I knew him a few days, I had said, I want to be a nun. And he said, yes, of course. And so three weeks after meeting him, I took my first ordination. Mm. So in the book... And said, I'm still with him, which is the irony of it. I mean, oh. the, of course, he, he himself died when he was 48, but oh. his incarnation came back the next year and is down the road, lives down the road 10 minutes from our nunnery. Oh, really? Uh, we're still very, very closely connected with oh, uh, no. the monastery. That's fortunate. Mm. How old is he now? Now he's about 42. Uh-huh. Oh, amazing. So just another parallel, but in the book, uh, you, I looked up and you're speaking about Comtrul Rinpoche and saw him for the first time. As I looked at him, it seemed as though two things were happening simultaneously. There was a sense of recognition, like meeting an old friend you haven't seen for a long time. At the same time, it was as if the very deepest thing inside me had suddenly taken an external form. I just love the way you you express that. I had the, I mean, pretty much the same experience with Neem Karoli. When I first saw him in the physical, oh, wait, I know you. Yeah, complete, utter recognition. And, uh, you know, and then the, the, uh, the spaciousness of the space in the moment, I, that was my first experience of, of that, really. And that, you know, of course, that inspiration. So this is just so parallel. And I loved it. Just amazing. Wow. Um, one of the other... One of, well, something that's just integral to to you and your work, which I think is invaluable, and I'm glad it's, it's you know, very much a, a big part of the book, which is around women and the path. And the work, can you just talk about the work that you're doing now and just, you know, why and what do you feel about it in terms of of this, this is a radical thing. Uh, I mean, it's so difficult for uh, women in monasteries and has been, you know, for ages. Maybe it's getting a little bit better now. I'm not, I'm not really sure, I, I think. Uh, but, yeah, talk about your work that way. Well, um, I, I spent many years, 18 years in um, a Himalayan valley called Lahul, uh, because my lama told me, Kamta Rinpoche told me to go away to Lahul and practice. Um, then after that, I had been in India 24 years. So then I decided I needed a break. So uh, I went to stay with some friends in, in Italy, in Assisi, um, which is sacred to St. Francis. Then after a few years, I... For various reasons, I felt I needed to go back to India. So I returned to India, and then the the lamas in um, the monastery said, we don't have anything for women, so you should start a nunnery. Mm. And the previous Kamta Rinpoche had said to me, I want you to start a nunnery on various occasions. And I hadn't done anything about it at that time. But this time when they said, you know, you should start a nunnery. I thought, yeah, actually, that's what I should do. I'd have no idea how, 
Um, I, you know, I never lived in a nunnery. I have, I'm not a Tibetan. I'm not a Lama. I'm, you know, how am I going to set about, you know, setting up a nunnery? By but then, I didn't knew. you know Tibetan? You, know, you had learned Tibetan had learned by then? Tibetan. Well, I had at that time, but I mean, it didn't help for, for setting up nunneries. Yeah. <laughs> um, well. That, uh, you know, where do you get the money? Where do you get the land? Where do you get the nuns? How do you decide how to train them? I mean, there's so many things to be thought about. But um, I, I recognized at that time that that's what needed to be done. So um, anyway, in various reasons, uh, it got accomplished. And um, mainly because I think... Um, I had no idea how to even begin. So then uh, I saw a, a, a painting of Tara, who is the Bodhisattva, the Buddha of enlightened activity. And uh, I said to her, okay, lady, if you want a nunnery, you do it. Um, I'll be the front person, but... Behind the scenes, you've got the one that's got to get set it up because I haven't got a clue how to get even started. And so she did, very kindly, and uh, everything came together as we needed it. I traveled around the world giving talks and also mentioning that we wanted a nunnery. And so often, East and West, the reaction was, oh, nuns. Oh, yes, nuns. Oh, the lamas never mentioned nuns. We've been giving donations for the last 20 years for monasteries. Nobody mentioned nuns. <laughs> so, um, you know, gradually things came together. We found good land and we started building and the right kind of people came to help. Mm. And now we have uh, about 120 nuns. And the, actually, way back when, it's true, nuns were very overlooked and neglected. They weren't educated. They weren't trained. On the whole, they were just, an, you know, adject to the <clears throat> monasteries. But in the last 25 years or so, things have really changed, not just me. I mean, in all the nunneries now, they have a study program. Nuns are becoming geshima, which is like professors or kenmos. They are themselves becoming teachers. The nunneries are well built. They are well maintained and supported. And the nuns themselves have really done a quantum leap in their uh, confidence and abilities to study and practice and propagate the Dharma. Mm. And to be fair, I mean, who has trained them and taught them now is the monks. Once the idea of training nuns came about, uh, the monks really got on board and, and really did their very, very best to teach them and to train them properly so that now they are very accomplished. And their whole attitude of the, not just the monks, but the lay people towards nuns and the attitude of nuns towards themselves has completely transformed within really a relatively very short time. Mm. And they're teaching as well, some of them? Yes. Some. I mean, in our nunnery, for example, uh, we have two male teachers and four non-teachers. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. Do you think that that's, um, will that come west, that tradition that's been set anew in the east, will that come west? I'm wondering, is there a place for nunneries in, in America? <laughs> you know, of course, the most successful nunnery in America is probably that of Tutan Children in Washington State. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called Shravasti Abbey, and that has been very successful, and she has very good training for nuns. Also, Tataloka in the Theravadin tradition, she has a, 
a group of nuns. Mainly the, the, the interest in, in the West is in uh, study and in maintaining the monastic discipline. But they've been very successful, and they. Um, but it's you see, it's very different in in Asia and like in the Tibetan tradition. Girls enter a nunnery at a very early age, you know, even four years old, right. and teenagers, and so they are like like soft clay, easy to mold. You know, you want them molded this way. They're very soft. You can mold them. Whereas in the West, most women come to monasticism at a mature age, right? They've already been educated. Yeah. Most of them have had professions. Most of them have been in relationships. Many have been married, even had children. Then having had a career and a life, they decide now I want to dedicate the rest of my life to the Dharma, and I'd like to be a nun. But they're already set, mm. the clay, right? In it, they're already set in their, their, their cups and bowls and vases. They're, they're, you, you can't remold them. Yeah. So it's much more difficult for them to live in. And also in the West, people are much more individualistic. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in Asia, these girls come from village backgrounds with... Um, you know, large families and everybody in the village working together and, and living together and putting up with each other. Uh, that's their background. Mm -hmm. Whereas yeah. in the West, we're very individualistic. So when everybody comes together, it's much more difficult for them to live harmoniously. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't know how to put up with each other. Absolutely not. We are in such a horrifically polarized state right now, you know? Yes, yes, but, yes. But the development of people, and, and even though I understand what you're saying about not really being able to mold, but I do also believe we, through Dharma and through introspection and Vipassana, which you talk about in the book, uh, I believe we can... Uh, find the places where those habitual patterns can be changed. The neurotic tendencies can Oh, of course can we can change, but mm. it's not always so easy for people to change living in within a community. That's mm. the thing. I mean, there are communities, Buddhist communities, which have worked very successfully, such as Thich Nhat Hanh's yeah. Plum Village yeah. in yeah. France. That seems to work very well. Um, but it, it takes a lot of work to get people to drop their egoistic self-opinionation and um, live together and, and with give and take uh, with, and patience. Yeah. yeah. Of course it can be done, but it's more of a challenge. It mm. comes much more naturally in a, a monastery or a nunnery where people start very young. Yeah, yeah no, I get that. Uh, my one of my current fav favorite subjects, a very good friend of mine, Krishnadas, uh, dreamed up somehow and and talks about it a lot, and I we've been uh, talking about it, and then I see it, it popped right up in your book, um, and you're talking about ego. What what we mean by ego in Buddhist parlance is this tight little sense of solid solidity in the center of our being which is, quote-unquote, me, and which therefore makes everything else into, quote-unquote, non-me, us and them. So his premise was, you people who listen to this podcast, by the way, this is a constant subject, a favorite subject. You wake up in the morning to the movie of me. You're the protagonist. You're the writer. You're the director. You're the producer. You even write the reviews. 24-7, right? And how, how that can get transformed is, is uh, what we have been working on forever. Yeah, but, um, you know, you're talking about how you think and feel, and these are my memories, my emotions. Can you talk more about that conundrum that is very difficult to, um, to get leverage 
on? Yeah, well, of course. I mean, Buddhism probably of any uh, spiritual tradition is the most ego-bashing. Uh, one of the uh, the view is is of that of non-self in the sense of non-ego. That and it's interesting that neuroscientists are saying the same thing that we. We project our own vision of a self, but if you look for it, you can never find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think the other side of it is that merely, you know, saying there's no self, there's no self, there's no ego, then who is saying there's no ego? Well, it's the ego. And if we look at the, the uh, early teachings of the Buddha, what did he recommend? He said, first you start with shamatha practice. That means like calm abiding, taming the mind, getting the mind pliable, workable, uh, amenable to training. But at the same time, he said, we cultivate what are called the four Brahma-viharas or the mm. four immeasurables, yeah. including friendliness or loving-kindness, compassion, rejoicing, and equanimity. And we start with ourself. May I be well and happy. May I be at my ease. May I be free from suffering, right? And so who are we sending thoughts of loving-kindness and compassion to? not to the ultimate nature of the mind, our Buddha nature, that already is love and compassion, right? It doesn't need our love and compassion, thank you very much. (laughs) So who does need it? Our little ego. Because our what is going to walk the spiritual path is our sense of self, and that needs to be whole and healthy and well-balanced in order to walk the path towards the dissolution of the small little ego self. It has to be healthy. If the ego is sick, then we're always thinking me, 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 putting ourselves down, criticizing ourselves, getting angry with ourselves, getting angry with others, and in general, having a hard time. So the first thing is to have a healthy psyche, a healthy, well-balanced mind, which is brought about through shamatha practice and through this exercise of loving kindness and compassion to ourselves and then filled up, you know, with loving kindness, we pause out towards others. If we are a healthy sense of self, we're not thinking about ourselves. It's only when we're sick that we think about ourselves. That's why psychiatrists are so popular and get so wealthy. <laughs> you know, you know, you lie there talking about me, 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 and my my hard life and my parents and my me, me, me. But when the the self is healthy, we don't have to think about ourselves. We naturally are more concerned with the happiness uh, of others. Mm. So this is the point that at the beginning we can't renounce the ego until we have a very healthy yeah, sense yeah, of exactly. self, so which right will on. then so right transform. Yeah, yeah. We did a movie a feature around Ramdas, and some of the teachings that he had oh. represented over decades and so on. It came out only a few years ago, four years ago maybe, and it was called Becoming Nobody. So... Many people, okay, we're going to jump on that bandwagon. We're going to become nobody. We're going to drop everything or whatever. I mean, we all have a bit of a naive view of that. All I'm, I'm not including you <laughs> at all, but we in general, our listeners and ourselves, and we, we, we come across it a lot. And uh, in... I don't know how many times we I've had to like we had discussions which you know was shown in theaters and we get together and have a Q and A about it. So people could ask questions uh, about it all. And what we talked about was exactly what you just said. You and what Ramdas repeated over and over. 
You don't. You have to have a uh, an ego persona that you uh, you've developed this from this the time that you got your name and thought, oh wow, I'm a separate something. I have a name. There's you know, and uh, from there, hopefully, you get to a point where it's a healthy representation of of, of that name, shall we say, and then understand through that persona, you're able to then go back to where you were before you started with that name, which is the wholeness of, of, of the reality of the nature, true nature. And uh, yeah, so we had to talk about that a lot because it was really a misnomer. There's, you don't just jump in and then let go. And when we call, when we talk about becoming nobody, it's about uh, you, you have to sort of bring in what emptiness is, which is also a big misnomer in the West. It's nihilistic. It's dark. It's a nothing. You know, Bob Thurman, I think you probably know Bob, uh, is uh, <laughs> he, I love his term, uh, the, the womb of bliss is emptiness. <laughs> Isn't that, that's kind of a poetic, nice way to put it. But it's, yeah, it's back to what you said before, uh, empty of that self that is grasping is really what we're talking about. So, yeah. Hmm. Yes, well, I mean, I think that one good thing which is seems to be happening is that originally when people uh when Tibetan Buddhism went to the West and you know all these tantras of course they always want the highest yoga tantras, not just the lower ones and then every so everybody wanted to do all these very exotic practices, and then they heard about Zogchen, so then they all wanted to you know realize the nature of the mind just like that. And um, so for a time, there was no interest. If one lama said, if I say I'm giving a talk on bodhicitta, on, you know, compassion, then maybe 10 people turn up. If I say I'm going to give a talk on Dzogchen, then 100 people turn up. Mm. And I said, well, you say you're giving a talk on Dzogchen, and then you talk about bodhicitta, you know, because that's also part of Dzogchen. Mm -hmm. yeah. But now there's a more an increasing interest in, like people, many people feel, okay, we see now the highest, the highest teachings, the highest practice, wonderful, but actually I can't do it. I'm not ready. And so now more and more people are saying, okay, great, now let's start with the foundations. We'll go back. Shamatha practice, bodhicitta practice, and also an interest now in mind training in Lojong mm. of taking difficulties onto the path and so forth, and the importance of using these uh, awareness and practices in our daily life, that it's not just a matter of what you do when you're sitting on your cushion, but how to integrate our understanding into our daily relationships and practice our work, our family, our relationships in all directions. How is that transformed by what we are practicing? What do you so this is good. To my mind, this is a, yeah. a maturing, yeah. you know, mm. their understanding of what spiritual life is really all about. Yeah. And you do make an emphatic point about bringing one's life is dharma. It is not you have a spiritual little spot that you meditate or chant or whatever you do, and then you have your life. It's all one. What, what is, but give, give us a, maybe a little bit of a suggestion, some methodology of how to um, increase the perspective that leads one to be able to process, you know, the daily life stuff in a way that's way more conscious? Well, I mean, there are many approaches, but one of them which is very practical is to recognize that in Buddhism, at least, they have something called the six paramita, the six perfection, uh, transcendental actions, starting with 
generosity, then ethical conduct, meaning conduct which doesn't harm anybody, and um, patience and uh, uh, enthusiasm and so forth. Meditation is only one of those aspects, and wisdom is the ultimate goal. But our life, therefore, is a means for us to cultivate these qualities which are needed for Buddhahood. It's not just meditation. Meditation is only one of those steps. There's this ethics, generosity, patience, enthusiasm, etc. During our daily life, we have so much opportunity to practice, to practice being generous, to practice being patient in the mm. face of other people's and problems. The, the opportunity to be, have, keep pure ethical conduct and never harm or lie or cause any problems for others and so forth. So during our day, we have these endless opportunities for, for practicing the, the, these qualities of the heart. So we should be grateful because sitting on the cushion, it's not an opportunity really to practice being generous, ethical or patient. Um, you can sit there thinking, may all beings be well and happy, may all beings be free from suffering, but then you come out the door and you meet the beings, which is probably your family, (laughs) and uh, then that's a whole other thing. But they are the practice. That's what is really important for us to remember is that our daily life and all its challenges is the practice. Mm. How we transform our attitude towards whatever we encounter. Yeah. And does not, I mean, this is something I do mention to people. Of course, I think that mindfulness is an important ingredient. It allows us to be more conscious of that interaction. If you get off your Zafu and then suddenly you meet somebody, you know, who you have a hard time with in one way or another, and then here's your opportunity Yet, if you're without some mindfulness training of some sort, where uh, Ramdas used a had a beautiful metaphor. It was in the latter part of his life. It was he called it loving awareness. So that yeah, you move into the into the center of your being, and from that perspective, you are not judging, you are not projecting, you are not reacting. You are being in a place where you can see your motivations clearly without judgment. You can see the way you're projecting, and and basically you can calm down a lot more. No, I mean, if we only could cultivate a little loving awareness in this world, it would be a completely different world. Yeah. 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 Yes, I mean, that's the essence of the practice. I mean, and the loving bit is very important because mindfulness can become very self-centered if we're not careful yeah, and quite tight. Yeah, coming and from this, the, the idea yeah. of loving awareness is much more sort of open and spacious sense of being mm. completely centered and balanced with an open heart, yeah. but clear and present. Yeah, yeah, it was a great teaching. Now, one of the things that we... Uh, that I picked up in, in the book. And and it's a subject that really, as we speak about the day-to-day life, it is our dharma, it, our life is our opportunity to transform and so on, as we have been discussing. People will come back and say, yeah, but I'm having a terrible time related to fear popping up and you do talk about it in the book where does it come from and uh, how we our identifications and so on would you talk uh, Tenzin about that well I think that the important thing is not to fear fear Mm. Mm. but to allow it to come up I mean Sutra Malioni talks a lot about this about facing the demons and making friends with them Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that this is a very important thing, that if, especially if people meditate, you know, they expect that they're going to uh, experience bliss and clarity 
and get a bit disheartened when they, uh, in fact, encounter fear or upsurges of anger or lust or whatever. That's not what they were meditating for. They yeah, thought this right. was going to overcome it. The wrong outcome. Um, the wrong outcome. <laughs> so, I mean, I always say when you go into the ocean, yes, you might meet with friendly dolphins and, and golden fish, but there are also sharks and killer whales out there. And the important thing is to befriend them. There's um, there's a wonderful uh, video clip of this woman who goes into the ocean and she meets with the sharks and she puts her arm in the mouth of the sharks down their throat and she takes out the hook which has is caught from the fishermen. You know, the fishermen, they, they sw- the sharks swallow the hook, then they break away, but they've still got the hook inside their throat, causing them enormous pain. So she goes into the ocean. These sharks come. There. She's surrounded by sharks. And her, she puts her whole arm inside all those teeth, and she takes out the hook for them. And then the next shark comes to be helped. Such compassion. Holy and God, this is a video? To my mind, that's a... That yes, yes. Look for a woman with sharks or something. Um, such a wonderful lesson on how to take our deepest fear and through our compassion and love and acceptance to transform it. Wow. Those sharks love her. And she has no fear of sharks. Obviously. Oh, my God. That's extraordinary. Really extraordinary. Mm. Well, since we're on this particular subject and uh, we can talk about something which again goes back to when you were very, you know, just your beginning story uh, when you talk about at an early age, I believed in the continuity of consciousness after death. In fact, death was a frequent topic of conversation in your family. So I never felt any fear or reservations about it. I mean, you know, this is a very, very young person having these kind of realizations. You talk about, uh, so then later in the book, which is uh, an apt subject for, I say, for certainly our generation now, but I tell next-gen people in their 20s who are discovering the path or whatever, now is the time, not waiting until, okay, I'm getting close, so I better do something. But now is the time because, you know, who wrote, oh, a wonderful book, How You How You Live is How You Die, um, Pema Chodron. Yeah, I mean, the, and that's the message, you know. It is. Uh, but you t- I, I love this. Personally, I would tell people who are fearful of death that they honestly have nothing to fear. It's a great, this is a great adventure. Ramdas used to say it's like taking off a tight shoe. It's something he got from one of his uh, disembodied friends. But can you talk about it? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I, of course, if you're really a very evil-minded person and you enjoy hurting others and you have a very sadistic framework to your life, you're going to be in trouble when you die. Mm. So, but most people especially people who are, you know, interested in finding some spiritual solutions in their life, are not bad people. I mean, we all make mistakes. We all do things we're sorry about. But, you know, in general, we're basically good-hearted. And in that case, I genuinely feel, and the Dalai Lama says the same thing, it's not just me, uh, that we shouldn't try to frighten people into all the horrible things that are going to happen when they die and that they were going down, downwards, not going upwards, that if you're a basically okay sort of person, you'll be okay when you go. And so the, to my mind, the important thing is that we should make sure that our um, worldly affairs are in good order so that when we die, there's not any problems. Our wills, we should make a will and and make it fair and just so that there's no you know bad feeling when we're gone and we should forgive mm. all those that we have 
born resentment towards in the past. People who have done bad things or things where we have resentment towards them. Let it go. Let it go. Because otherwise, next life we're going to have to play that game again. Why bother? <laughs> so forgive them. We all make mistakes. We all do things we shouldn't have done, but never mind. So what? Let it go. And those that we care for, those that we love, let them know that we love them. But say, now it's okay, we all have to go on. And then if we have, at the time of death, if we have any a special object of devotion, then we should think of that, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. Um, and, and keep that in mind. And if we don't have any a special object of devotion, then just to think of the light and that we're going towards the light. Mm-hmm. And then relax and let go. And let it all unfold. I mean, the Tibetan Buddhism is very complicated with all the different elements dissolving one into the other mm, and then the different, you know, uh, gross consciousness into the subtle consciousness, very subtle consciousness. And if one has practiced like that in the tantras during life, then, of course, that is especially, especially helpful at the time of death. But for people who haven't, not to worry about, oh, was that the earth consciousness going into the fire consciousness? Was that, you know, I mean, let it go. It doesn't matter. The important thing is to just let go, have devotion and trust and and go towards the light or towards the object of one's devotion. Keep that in mind. Then no. don't worry, you know. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry, be happy. I mean, the most worry, natural thing in, in life is death. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you know? We, so we haven't why? learned that in we the West, that uh, unfortunately. Mm, but, uh, I mean, you know. I, yeah, it's very difficult. And as the Buddha said, the one thing certain about life is death. And so just pre- use your life to prepare so mm. that when we die, we can die without regrets. Mm. Okay, I made use of this life. I benefited myself, I benefited others. It, I didn't waste my life. My life had meaning, and now I can let it go and go forward to whatever comes next. Yeah. Uh, the other day I did a podcast with somebody, and he said, I just got to tell you this story of a, a, a very close friend of mine, a woman who I don't remember if it was an accident or a disease or, or what, but she died. and she came back, so she had a near-death experience. Okay. And, right. and she said, I, you know, it was classic. I have talked, I've had podcasts with people who've done many, many uh, uh, interviews with people who had near-death experiences, and it's classic. It's extraordinary. There is a tunnel. There is light. There is the um, absolute profundity of bliss, and just homeness shall we say yes and there is there there are some uh, you know you do see beings that you have known that have passed on and so on classical almost but but the great thing is this light and this bliss and this entering into a a space that is uh, uh the opposite of what fear would dictate to you in terms of fear of death and why don't we know that why don't we trust that? Mm. When I was young and I nearly burned to death, I had a near-death experience too. Oh, really? And um, oh. at that time I was up, I was looking down at my body, but I was up and they were surrounded by all these beautiful beings of light saying, come with us, come with us. And I definitely wanted to go with these lovely beings of light. I didn't want to go down into this burned-out, shriveled little body down there. I mean, I had to return. I think my mother was praying very hard. Um, But I I remembered that this near-death experience um, was very blissful. Mm. And it wasn't in the least bit frightening. Mm. And uh, I, I just felt that it was a totally positive experience. It wasn't in any way. It's only that we identify with our body and therefore we are so afraid of leaving behind what we consider to be me. 
which is our physical form, not recognizing, not trusting that our consciousness goes on. And it's so much happier often to be actually freed from uh, often a body which is, you know, in, in a very sick state. Why we cling to that? Despite the pain and the the you know the the difficulties, we're still clinging. Why are we clinging to this worn out body when we can go forward to 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 a huge, vast, open, spacious bliss? Mm. Aren't we perverse? Yes, yes, we are. And indeed, start at an early age. Everybody out there who's listening. Uh, and deal with clinging because that is exactly what it is that holds us down and creates fear at every level all the way through to that point at which you transform, you know. Clinging. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I mean, the Buddha said the cause of our suffering is, is our clinging mind. Mm. Yeah. And so we have to learn how to let go. And then when we let go, it's not like we fall into a void. I mean, it's that point, it's the tremendous sense of open, spacious presence that is, is full of joy. Mm. I mean, I, I think that people really have to remember that the, a genuine spiritual path is a path of joy. Yeah. Would you... Uh, Which is good news. Yes, it is. <laughs> Would you? I, I, I don't. I, I, we're at the end of our our time, but I wonder if is there a way you could lead us in a short, just few minutes uh, meditation? Well, just for two minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just sit nicely. The important thing is to keep the back straight, but not tense, and then just. Just breathe and know we're breathing. That's all we have to do. The important thing is not so much the breath. The important thing is the knowing of the breath, the awareness of the breath. Just relax. Allow thoughts to come and go, but don't follow them. Just breathe and be with the breath. Just. Oh, such a relief. Nothing to do but breathe and know we're breathing. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Tenzin Palmo. Thank you so much. And uh, everybody, we will uh, get Tenzin has another, but we didn't even talk about the fact that she spent quite a, uh, a nice amount of time meditating uh, at one period in her life. And there's a book about that. And we're going to make sure that everybody gets the links so that they can purchase the books and at the same time, you know, just get an idea of more of uh, Tenzin's work. And uh, we are just happy to have had you here. I am particularly. So thank you so much.